Hello, my little things. This is Danny Janae, um, host of the Fig Widow cast. I am here to tell you about poetry, about creative nature of things. Um, sorry, I'm kind of distracted um, because I think that today's episode is an important episode and I don't want to waste any time being cute or like dancing around the subject because I think it's important what I want to talk about. Um, so I'll just jump right into it. For those of you that don't read the news or don't really pay attention to what's going on in the world, which I doubt is many of you, um, there is basically a genocide unfolding right now in the Middle East, specifically Gaza and Palestine. Um, the events sort of transpired on October 7th and have been continuing since then, but everybody that knows history knows that this started long before October 7th. Um, I'm not going to get into what happened on October 7th to spur the genocide that's happening right now, but it's just important to know that there are innocent men, women, and children that are dying in Gaza, and the U.S. is aiding and abetting that murder by supplying tons of aid to Israel uh, through a $14 billion aid package so that they can get more weapons to destroy homes and hospitals and refugee camps and things in Gaza. So with that in mind, I haven't really been doing anything but reading the news about that. I've been reading um, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine by Elan Pape. I think that's how you say his last name. He is an Israeli scholar. Um, so I've been reading that, pretty much only that. Um, and yeah, I specifically wanted to come to this platform that I have and share with you some poems by Palestinian poets, um, Palestinian poets that are in Gaza and some that are in other parts of that area and others that are based in America or other places around the world. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's important for people that are not Palestinian to express their solidarity with Palestinians right now. And as a Black American person, as a queer person, as a woman, I feel like so much of our oppressions, our, our stories are tied together um, because of the, the brutality of white supremacist culture and white supremacist violence. Um, and I think it's important to name that and call that out, as well as celebrating these poets who are losing family members or losing their homes or losing history, you know, like I think what like 50 bloodlines, 50 families have been completely wiped off the face of the earth. Like that's grandparents, great grandparents, uh, children, great grandchildren, stuff like that. Like that is remarkable and terrible and horrifying. Um, and I think it's important for me to, talk about it, um, even if it's scary to talk about it, and even if it's, if it's scary to criticize Israel as like a nation state, as an apartheid state, whatever phrase you wanna use to describe it. Um, and it's scary because any criticism of Israel is blanketly uh, referred to as anti-Semitism. And I don't think that that's true. Like I have a lot of 
not to do the thing where like people are like, oh, I have black friends, but I know a lot of Jewish people. I know a lot of my Jewish friends who are also critical of Israel, who have come from Israel, who have been born there and like moved to the U.S. or like have visited there on birthright and things like that. And they're so critical of Israel as like uh, a world power, um, just as we who are based in the U.S. are critical of the U.S. and its role in violence around the world. Um, so I wanted to come here and read some poems to you um, because that's what this podcast is about. But I wanted to talk a little bit about why I'm doing that first. Um, so I'm going to take a little break and then I'll be back to read you lots and lots of poems. All right, I'm back. Uh, forgive any background noise you hear. I'm recording in my apartment and I don't have my headphones right now because they're sort of like out of out of commission. Um, but I'm recording with my standard microphone without my headphones. So you might hear people running around. There are kids next door and things like that. Um, so sorry about that. And also sorry that I haven't put out an episode in two weeks. I went on vacation and then uh, things got really hectic in the world and I was too distracted to record. So this is my apology for that. And I'll start reading poems now. So the first poem that I want to read is by a poet that I've read to you before, Naomi Shiamnai, who is Palestinian. I think her father is Palestinian and her mother is American or the other way around. I can't remember. Um, but I read a few of her poems to you before. And so I'm going to read another one today. Bees Were Better by Naomi Shiamnai. In college, people were always breaking up. We broke up in parking lots, beside fountains. Two people broke up across the table from me at the library. I could not sit at that table again, though I did not know them. I studied bees, who were able to convey messages through dancing and could find their ways home to their hives, even if someone put a blockade of sheets and boards and wire. Bees had radar in their wings and brains that humans could barely understand. I wrote a paper proclaiming their brilliance and superiority and revised it at a small cafe, featuring wooden hive-shaped honey dippers and silver honey pots at every table. I love that poem. Um, do I want to read another one from her? I think I should. Okay, I'm going to read different ways to pray. There was the method of kneeling, a fine method, if you lived in a country where stones were smooth. The women dreamed wistfully of bleached courtyards, hidden corners where knee fit rock. Their prayers were weathered rib bones, small calcium words uttered in sequence, as if the shedding of syllables could somehow fuse them to the sky. There were men who had been shepherds so long they walked like sheep. Under the olive trees, they raised their arms. Hear us, we have pain on earth. We have so much pain, there is no place to store it. But the olives bobbed peacefully in fragrant buckets of vinegar and thyme. At night, the men ate heartily, flatbread and white cheese, and were happy in spite of the pain because there was also happiness. Some prized the pilgrimage, wrapping themselves in white linen to ride buses across miles of vacant sand. 
When they arrived at Mecca, they would circle the holy places on foot. Many times they would bend to kiss the earth and return their lean faces, housing mystery. While for certain cousins and grandmothers, the pilgrimage occurred daily, legging water from the spring or balancing the baskets of grapes. These were the ones at present at birth, humming quietly to perspiring mothers, the ones stitching intricate needlework into children's dresses, forgetting how easily children's soil clothes. There were those who didn't care about praying, the young ones, the ones who had been to America. They told the old ones, you are wasting your time. Time, the old ones prayed for the young ones. They prayed for Allah to bend, to mend their brains for the twig, the round moon, to speak suddenly in a commanding tone. And occasionally there would be one who did none of this. The old man Fawzi, for example, Fawzi the fool who beat everyone at dominoes insisted he spoke with God as he spoke with goats and was famous for his laugh. Okay. Let's see, what do I want to read next? Um, okay, let's do this George Abraham poem. George Abraham, also a Palestinian poet. This is from an all-Palestinian issue of a magazine called Faya. Uh, this poem is, f um, this is an excerpt from Universal Theory on which every failed attempt at love is a soulmate from an alternate timeline by George Abraham. Let's say this is the story of a boy you love so much, you did everything in your power to cast him, almost. Consider the wane and the cyclic, the phylogenic folding. Let's say he loves you in a way you can only imagine as evolution of and here. The mythos of he and you misalign, sky recharted, trajectories convexed. You tell him the myth where the boy grazes, gazes into water and falls feverishly in love with himself. You tell him you fear becoming both the boy and the river's reflection. When the radio sings, I don't want to be alone tonight. You cast his eyelashes into Atlas curling throttle, and you don't want to be. Alone tonight, when you do not want, you remember the spellbound book which said, by birth, the stars have crafted you into their mirror, warning that all your most beloved may come to resent their reflections in you. You listen, and in their grand incomprehensible silence, you find there is a you, and there is a you beyond that you. Somewhere language is, a less question, is less a question of possession. In daylight, you cannot look him in the eye without fear of knowing. Though you suspect somewhere that is not here, there's a part of him that sees you back. So let's call him epicenter of everything you are trying to reach. It isn't loneliness, exactly. You've had so many loves and so many lives, and just beyond all of them is the love you know you deserve. In this way, you grow weary of every mythos wherein love begins with a self. You fear you love yourself dangerously. Didn't they tell you the boy bent over the riverbed was a less was less a matter of obsession than psychic? That to call any water still in crystal is a lie than a than a simplification. Turbulent he is, you and he is not you. He loves you and he loves you, nodded. You're plucking eyelashes like flower petals, salt tossing and dizzy. You call him by all his names, and you and your and yours dance into tenseless. And if the river is to ravine, let it be a mirror there and there and there, there, at the center of a fissure. Fissure, not again. You will make out a reflection, knowing it isn't entirely your own. 
I love the part in this poem where, let's see, where is it? He loves you and he loves you nodded. That like turn of phrase is so beautiful. This whole poem is just like breathtaking. I really enjoyed reading that. Okay, this is um, a poet that I actually met during a reading. Um, she was in Pittsburgh a couple years ago and I, I think she wanted to read with a local poet. And so the menu reached out and asked for me um, and I was very grateful to her for like accepting that. And she was just an amazing poet, so I'm really excited to read her work. This is Chore Dress by Jessica Abogadis. My chore dress looks good on me. A dab of detergent will get anything out, and this is the scam of therapy. My con artist calls to confirm my appointment. She wants my $185, which I could use to pay the government. I really ought to cut down the twin elm rising out of the hedge. The drought is in a second year. The houseboats can touch their feet to the bottom. Your doctorate and Zen water feature are meaningless to me. I will think of this ink staying the rest of my life. Tonight's the summer solstice. The air conditioner cannot keep up. Finally, you must understand I'm being coy. Everything is a rejuvenation or a bill in a sterling silver envelope known as white oppressive paper. To be dirty is not so bad. I wouldn't mind getting paint on this dress. I wouldn't mind at all if I had a dress, a durable and well-made item that suits me and is suitable to stain. I really love this poem. Um, Jessica has a book out that came out when I did the reading with her, which is like maybe 2020, 2021. It's called Strip. It was the winner of the the 2020 Itzel Anon Poetry Prize. Um, so... If you're looking for books of poetry to read, that one is a wonderful one to choose. Okay, so this is um, a journal called The Baffler, and they did a specific, uh, what's it called, edition called Poems from Palestine in 2021. So I'm going to read some poems from that selection. This poem is by Rowan Hussein, and it's called Dawn. Dawn broke on our heads. Endings were cut down to size. Our little one's feet rapidly turned toward the sky. Time set itself aside and places shut their eyes, like a child with words that gray behind her lids. Ceilings tumbled, waterfalls of stone, and under the rubble the last received image hangs a final painting sculpted on our faces. Alone we grow old tonight. Weave hours and wear them, gobble the terror that runs down our kids' mouths, who will devour our rusted lips. Okay. Also, I'm sorry if I mispronounce names. Um, I tried to do my research and make sure that I was pronouncing them right, but um, I will try harder. So this one is by Alam Basrat. 
It's called How I Kill Soldiers. Colonial soldiers. What have they been doing to my poetry all these years when I could have easily killed them in my poems as they've killed my family outside poetry? Poetry was my chance to settle the score with killers, but I let them age outdoors, and I want them to know decay in their lives, their faces to wrinkle, their smiles to thin out, and their weapons to hunch over. So if you, dear reader, see a soldier taking a stroll in my poem, trust that I have let him left him to his fate as I leave a criminal to his remaining years, they will execute him. And his ears will execute him as he listens to me reciting my poem to grieving families. He won't be able to slink out of my book or the reading hall as the seated audience stares at him. You will not be consoled, soldier, you will not. Not even as you exit my poem, my poetry event with slumped shoulders and pockets full of dead bullets. Even if your hand, tremulous as it is, from so much murder, fidgeted with the bullets, you will not produce more than a dead sound. Wow. Let me see. Hand of War by Hossam Maraf. We hold war's hand, not so that it walks among us, but it is death, a bit tardy, we cajole it. We hold war's hand, convinced that it is, that this is the last time it waves catastrophe to us, since the road is a futile wall and the country is searching for a photograph of collective sorrow. Okay, this is Carob Tree by Tariq Alarabi. I want to talk with you. It's been a while since no one's talked with me. No one around says to me things I say to you when I'm sleepwalking. For example, yesterday at 3 a.m., the soldiers rained tear gas bombs on us. Ten workers who crammed in a walk-in refrigerator for produce. And the gas, like crude oil that spilled into the sea, a forest fire that occupied all the air. The carob tree was uprooted. I still don't know what you're like when you catch the flu. Tomatoes are cheap this season and the farmers are sad. I've saved the best tomatoes for you. As, as for the first thing I do when I wake up, I check the weather. Weather enthusiasts in Palestine, like followers of skincare products on Instagram, are many. And one more thing, since you're not here, do you like eggplant? I don't have a lot to say about these poems just because I want them to have the air to breathe once I read them. Um, but trust these are like so beautiful and devastating. This is called Nakba. It's by Shika Haleha. Halewa, I think. My mother is three years young, younger than the Nakba. 
but she doesn't believe in great powers. Twice a day, she brings God down from his throne and reconciles with him through meditation of the best recorded Quranic recitations. And she can't bear meek women. She never once mentioned Nakba. Had Nakba been her neighbor, my mom would have shamelessly chided her. I'm sick of the clothes on my back. And had Nakba been her older sister, sister, she would have courted her with a dish of kubaze. But if her sister whined too much, my mom would tell her, enough, you're boring holes in my brain. Maybe we shouldn't visit for a while. And had Nakma been an old friend, my mom would tolerate her idiocy until she died, then imprison her in a young in a young picture up on the wall of the departed, a kind of cleansing ritual before she'd sit to watch dubbed Turkish soap operas. And had Nakma been her elderly Jewish had been an elderly Jewish woman that my mom had to care for her on Sabbath, my mom would teasingly tell her in cute Hebrew, You hussy, you still get a f- you still got a feel for it, don't you? And had Nakma been younger than my mom, she'd spit in her face and say, Rain in your kids, get them inside, you drifter. I love twice a day she brings God down from his throne, then reconciles with him. So good. This is by Jadal Al-Kasim, called Innocent Despair. When separate from my blood, when separate from you, my blood will ache. An unknown part of me will ache, and I will try to kill it, or grab it. The cell that misses you will throb in me, and I won't be able to spot it. It changes position often, drags out the game, hurts my senses. My eyesight will worsen, my auditory range will dwindle, and my nose, hunting dogs, will search for your smell. Whenever air touches my skin, a fiend will pierce my body and flee. My memory will hurt and eat my head, and my head will vanish but not die. My ache will regenerate my head. I'll grow sad, an invisible feeling, a ruin, an infinite overflow of dread. And the angry universe will collect itself in a corner of my life to ask me, what have you done with the scale of love? How did you waste openness on detail? The answer will hurt me as will silence. Burning, I'll go to my death and demand my right to a nap. God, I love that ending. What have you done with the scale of love? Jesus. This is by Alam Basrat, Obeda the Cow. We had a cow, Obeda the Cow. She had big white eyes, but the whole herd had big white eyes. She was dappled, but the rest of them were dappled. She had two large udders that daily gave two or three buckets of milk, but every other cow in the herd had full udders. My mom milked them for the same amount. Most of the time, Obeda had snot running down her nose. And that was disgusting and pervasive in the herd we owned. The nostrils were snot-filled. And whenever we took her calf away from under her, Obeda used to shed tears like human tears. And that was the case for the rest of the cows. 
Whenever we took their calves away from them, they cried like humans might. Obana used to suffer longing and would low a painful moo. The whole herd could do this and rip our heart cords apart, send us into hiding under blankets, as if taking cover from a night monster until daybreak. At daybreak, we'd clarify our safe presence by taking a piss out in the open, one after the other, a natural rite of passage, as the sun recited her hymns overhead. Then into the plains, we, kids, would go unafraid of being lost, where we'd been in previous life. We knew even the smallest rocks, the yellow snakes, the crossing time, and in our mouths we held a piece of bread each, and in each hand a thin stack of the corpse of the poppy plant. We used to call the bitter orange bush. We would run, brandishing our sticks, with Obeda in the herd behind, ahead of us, and alongside them our dog, Camel. I love these poems, just depictions of like everyday life, even if that depiction is somewhat violent because so many of these people have lived under violence for decades. Um, let's see, what else do I want to read? Okay, this is by Gassan Zaktan. My enemies defeated me for nothing. My enemies defeated me, led me downhill, executed my horse and made me watch. My enemies defeated me, sold my mats, rugs, and colored rosaries at the bazaar to merchants and traders in the shadows. In the dark, my friends betrayed me. My children saw the hyena laugh outside our window. At the tavern, the wheat seller tricked me, sold me wine that I could tell was spiked when I held my glass to candlelight. His plump wife kept filling my glass, kept bending behind the barrels. Then her scoundrel husband steadied my wobbling to the room upstairs, and the tax collectors rushed straight to my place, opened the stable gates, let the mule, calves, and bull out, and mixed my flour with salt. The dogs I had fed from my plate fled, let their barks on thorns and cactuses, and in my neighbor's envy and his two wolfish daughters. For nothing I had plowed thirty years, fed strangers who knocked at my door, fed tax collectors for nothing. I forgave my neighbors their larcenies and snitching. For nothing I carried water to their homes, hate to their mules, wine to their tables, called them by their clumsy family names and meditated under the branches of their foolish trees. For nothing I left a lantern down the slope, a covered bowl of milk with the fat on top at my doorstep. Okay, my um, recording platform is running out of time, so I'm going to stop here and then come back. Okay, I'm back. Um, so this next poem is called The Man Who Writes Newspaper Articles While the Trees Disappear and No One Listens. This is by Dahlia Taha. For several days, my grandfather cried. In the end, he admitted he was alone, as though he didn't have seven sons who had given him 25 grandchildren. My grandmother at home, a basket of figs between her feet, is daydreaming as she carefully peels and feeds them to my grandfather like he's her child. This is now, this now is the shape of their kiss, 
her fingers on his lips. Around them, everything is a memento of forgetting. No dust in this house. Their flesh covers everything, even the cushions. They've stopped sleeping over at other people's homes. They are residents of their own bodies and their home is collapsing over them while their flesh grows over their flesh. In the same basket, beneath the good fruit, my grandmother finds small hearts that belong to us, her 25 grandchildren, scattered across this earth, incapable of love. She'll consider them just like she considers all the figs, the ones ripe enough and the ones that won't do for anything other than making jam. The cold jam in the refrigerator is our corpses, and it's all they consume since they lost their teeth. I wouldn't read another one by that poet. This one is called The Man and His Girlfriend Who Argued All of Last Night and Now Stand at a Pharmacy in Our City to Buy Medication for Headaches. Look over there. The sea is invisible yet. Though we've been driving for two hours. Though we've begun to feel its moist, its hot, moist air. Though our clothes are sticking to our bodies. In the car we eat grapes and don't talk. As if the sweat oozing from our bodies is how we communicate now. How our souls trade words or strikes. We're on Highway 6. I'm on the phone making sure we didn't take the wrong exit. You're asking me to pass you something. And with the same heads that crossed the checkpoint, the same neutral expressions that waited while the soldier looked over our papers, we turn to take in empty hills, completely empty. There's something that speaks of the Arab villages, I note, and you nod your beautiful head. Even the silence that envelopes the scene after a massacre, and never leaves it. The silence that clings to rocks and trees and is released by the soil like fumes. That particular kind of heavy silence. You know what I mean. You sense it when we visit the hills of Rwanda or Bosnia. You feel it instantly. You don't understand how it happens, exactly. But you move backwards as though you aren't stepping on grass, but on the gasp of the dead. As if what extends from the trees aren't branches, but the dead's last words, standing upright, crows alighting on them. They tried to get rid of the silence with the highways and the thrum of moving cars. They tried skillfully to remove everything when they tossed their white gloves on the grass. I feel like I'm performing like nothing. I feel like I'm performing, like nothing about what I'm doing is real. As if what I'm wearing underneath my clothes isn't a bathing suit, but a ghost. No one can return to those villages, to the hillside. It's over forever. This is a fixed truth. I realized this on the way to the sea, and a strange grief fills me. The sea that is invisible yet, as if, too, knows and has disappeared, and nothing but the sweat oozing from our bodies tells us it's there. And because words between us have come to an end, without saying it out loud, together we long to meet it, while the white gloves on the hills so they grow into poisonous flowers. Wow. That poem was wow. Okay. I'm only going to read a few more, but there are so many to read. This is by Maya Abu Al-Hayat. It's called Daydream. I'll write about a joy that invades Jenin from six directions. 
about children running while holding balloons in Amari camp, about a fullness that quiets breastfeeding babies all night in Asgar, about a little seed being strolled up and down in Tulkarem, about eyes that stare in people's faces in Balada, about a woman dancing for people in line at the checkpoint in Kalandia, about the stitches in the sides of laughing men in Azun, about you and me stuffing our pockets with seashells and madness and building a city. Okay, I'm going to read another one by that poet. It's called Mahmood. Mahmood. Mahmood could have been our son. I'd have objectified, objected to the name, and for family reasons, you, you'd have insisted on it. We could have brought him a crib with a blue quilt and hung spinning musical animals to coax him to sleep. Could have stayed up all night for his first tooth, experimenting with various formulas because my breast couldn't produce enough milk for his voracious appetite. Or with a new Nikon camera, we could have captured his first step. And his verbal skills would have wiped the floor with your niece's skills, of course. We, we would have disagreed over his elementary school. Nothing wrong with public education, you'd have said. And I'd have demanded a private one. You'd have turned your face toward me as you counted our few remaining dollars to my wailing, in about, to my wailing about balancing the budget. We would have been happy. His first school bag in one hand his other hand waving to the neighbor's girl before waving to us. His teacher would have complained as teachers won't or want to do. And we'd have called her names for her blindness to the genius of our only son. Yes, we would have bought him battery-operated oper battery car, built him a paper plane that doesn't fly, maintained his white teeth, flipped his collar for coolness, and he'd have loved me more than you because the issues beyond my grasp. Your jealousy would have grown mysterious. When his voice changed, he'd hate us both and let the neighbors go more. Rumination would have haunted us from hours at night. Or whispered advising us to be patient, let go, observe from a distance. Then you'd have lost your wits over his first cigarette, the hidden pack in the laundry room. But his tremulous voice would, have pre would prevent you from slapping him with an open palm. You'd have forgiven him. You were kind like that. He'd only smoked in secret. But the first rock he'd have thrown at soldiers at the checkpoint to raise his heroic stock in Mano's eyes would have declared war in our house, biting followed by flipping slippers. Nightly debates would have helped us, wouldn't have helped us to core solutions. I'd have to carry him between my teeth, fly him from one neighborhood to another to shield him, but he'd run away. That would be who he'd always been, a misguided kid who saps the heart and soul. That's who he was. Still, you were martyred 80 eight years before he was born, and he was martyred eight years before you were gone, after you were gone. Okay, I'm gonna read one more probably. Maybe two more. Okay, I'm gonna do this one by Zakaria Muhammad, two poems. One, I caught a glimpse of you as I ran. I had no time to stop and kiss your hand. The world was chasing me down like I was a thief and it was impossible for me to stop. If I had stopped, I'd have been killed. 
but I caught a glimpse of you. Your hand is some narcissist in a glass of water, your mouth unbuttoned, and your hair soaring a bird your hair a soaring bird of prey. I caught a glimpse of you, but I had no matches with me to light a bonfire and dance around it. The world was failing me, abandoning me, so I didn't wave at you. One day the world will settle down. The crazed cable channels will stop broadcasting, and those that hound me will disperse so I can return to that road, one where I caught a glimpse of you. I'll find you in that same chair. Your hand is a narcissist, your smile a bird of prey, and your heart an apricot blossom. And there with you, beneath the shade of your apricot, I'll tear down the tent of my orphanhood and build my home. Two, night is a generous friend. All things loosen their vines over my head. My beloveds are seated around me as if we are at a celebration. My beloveds who have passed, my beloveds who are here and beloveds yet to come. And death is a watchdog chained at the gate. Only the Kamasin wind beats angrily at the door. Kamasin is a loathsome neighbor. I raise a wall between us, turn out the lights between us. I'm happy, singing like a rod of ephedra, crying out like a raptor. Do not believe my words. Do, don't reach out to the vines in the darkness. Night is a pact of horrors. Ten birds sleep in the tree, but one anxiously circles the house. And as you know, one birth suffices to destroy an entire celebration, one match to burn down a civilization. The meal was cold. I rinsed my mouth out afterwards with kamasine and washed my hands with lichen. If there was one issue, if there was any use in weeping, I would have wept before you all. But weeping requires more energy than we possess. So I will sing for you like tender saba wind. I'll sing in the vernacular of a young basil stem. Night is a stone of amber. Night is a pact of marvels. Okay. I will include the link to this journal issue um, in the episode description. I probably will link the other poems that I read as well. Um, thank you for listening to this if you did listen. Um, thank you for those of you that are doing what you can, whether that's calling your senators and like representatives calling for a ceasefire, donating to aid packages that are trying to get to Gaza. And even just people just talking about what's happening and, you know, risking losing jobs, losing opportunities to speak out against what's happening. I really appreciate you all for that. And I appreciate every poet that I read today. Um, I send you all so much love and care. And I hope that you're free in this lifetime. Okay, that's it for today, you guys. Bye.